to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. That sounds good. John Brown, number three. Not finished just yet, because this book is very long and full of cool, full, full of cool shit. Let's get right into it. Uh, so much brown. So much cool brown in so this book. So much brown. Um, what's up? Hello. Welcome to part three of the John Brown series, Podium America. I'm Jake. Alex is here. What's up? I'm Jake's friend and Anders' friend and Naomi's friend. Part three, John Brown. Anders. Hi, I'm Naomi. Anders Lee here. <laughs> Perfect. Beautiful. With Naomi. And we uh, we actually have a mutual John Brown. Oh, I yeah. forgot to mention this last time, but Naomi at Columbia's Teachers, Teachers College, uh, where she was learning to be a, a teacher to teach kids about John Brown, one of the professors there was a man named John Brown. Who is my uh, cousin once removed, now deceased? But wait a minute, yeah. is this where the expression "mutual John Brown" comes from? <laughs> yeah, are you and Naomi related? Uh, no, but her, uh, <laughs> second cousin. her professor, second, it's not that bad. Her, her former professor uh, was related to me. Oh. Um, All right, what? Yeah. <laughs> You're just confusing everybody. He, his, I had a professor named John Brown at Teachers College. That's some who's related distantly to Anders. That too, my mom's cousin. Yeah, right. You have a mutual John Brown, like the expression. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, MJB. I have a mutual John Brown with Jake through my friend Jeremy. He's our John Brown. Yeah. And oh. that he's a guy we both know. It's also okay. very common name. It's not really that weird of a thing to happen you know well he's the only john brown i know so what's charlie brown's dad's name do you ever find out is that maybe implied it's sam (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's why the adults talk like that on peanuts because they're traumatized because john brown made them murder people (laughs) (laughs) all right well let's dive right back into it um so, first off, just some notes from the audience. I did not realize how many, like, I guess Christians listen to our show. People are not having our uh, basic rudimentary entry-level understanding of, like, theological shit. Christianity. Apparently, I've been imagining... Mostly like, genealogical they had a problem with, that we didn't know who Salmon was. Is that what it was? Yeah. yeah, we sound like was- a bunch of Pharisees on here. Yeah. My God. Well, um, I guess all I can say is, uh, you know, forgive me and thank you for uh, bear with me and uh, th- you know, thank you for your patience. Um, someone was making fun of me because there's that part in like the first episode we did where I couldn't think of a prayer and I just was like um, uh, grasping for that fucking. Uh, lay me. Yeah, you did the Metallica prayer. Uh, if I die before I wake, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to my soul, soul, the Lord to take. So that 
the reason I bring that up is because that's going to come up in this episode, actually, oddly enough. <coughs> You'll understand when we get there. Um, but anyway, Ooh. we're going to go immediately. We're going to pick up right after, uh, right where we left off, which was, you know, basically like first blood. Not really first blood in the Rambo sense because he was responding. He was responding like Rambo by saying, they drew first blood, right? That's they drew what, first blood. What Potawatomi was, was him going, well, they're fucking killing people. All right, I'm going to go, uh, you know, take the law into my own hands or whatever, right? But if you remember... But if you consider the blood of the slaves, it's kind of Rambo first blood, isn't it? No, that's what I mean. Yeah. I mean, this is him saying they drew first blood. This isn't mm. John Brown drawing the first blood. The whole justification for Potawatomi is that, you know, they, they were killing people. This is in self-defense. They said they were going to kill me and my family. Right. Um, you know, so he uh, basically, uh, what do you call it, like counteracted first or whatever. But um, he uh, when we did this last time, I kind of had a lot of notes together. I kind of ran out of steam right as we got to that. So just to clear up some things that I uh, hadn't really gotten to in terms of Potawatomi, what happened there was that a man named Henry H. Williams had told him where some members of the court that tried to indict him and his family lived. And he knew these people to be, you know, basically like the crueler of the pro-slavers. One of them owned like a, a, what do you call it? A fucking... What is a convenience store, but in the old west, it's like a old timey fucking shop. General store. There you go. That's what it was. What do you call a convenience store for slaves? <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the families of the people he killed was uh, suspected of like pimping Native Americans and shit. All sorts of pimping. Weird stuff. Yeah, pimping. Like, okay, pimping. Yeah. And I know also that was right. a, one of them was one of them was a judge, correct? Well, he didn't actually kill the judge. He killed some people that were affiliated with the court case, essentially. That Maybe you're thinking about how they were judge, jury, and executioner of these oh, five yeah. men. <laughs> if I remember correctly, exactly. I think he might have actually tried to go after the judge, but the guy just wasn't home or something. But okay. it was in direct retaliation for that. And uh, I forgot to mention this just because it's fucked up. I think I should bring it back up. One of the houses they went to, a bunch of bulldogs fought them, and they killed them with the swords. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. whoa. Nice. Damn, dude. Dude, dogs are... I mean, you... I think about this all the time. If you get attacked by a dog, you better have your sword because they are relentless, and they're so big. Yeah. yeah. Anyone can shoot a dog, but cutting a dog Anyone up, can shoot a dog. Yeah. We say that every week on this show. You never see a cop do the the link move where you swirl your sword in a circle at a dog. Yeah. Kill it until rupees come out of it. So, um, so what happened to Potawatomi is that he formed a posse, right? And the posse, this is important to list the characters because some of them kind of come back later on. Um, he rode with Frederick, Salmon, Owen, Oliver... Uh, his son-in-law, Henry Thompson, a guy named James Townsley, and this dude named Theodore Wiener, who was a, just like a really yeah. tough Jewish guy who rode a pony, yeah. which is pretty we cool. We all know right? one of those. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you get a pony at deep. your mitzvah. <laughs> yeah. So Theodore Wiener was kind of an enemy of the guy who owned the general store and was kind of terrorized by him. And also... I'm just going to shift around here. Also, um, 
he said he was just like, you know, he was this Austrian dude who just, uh, you know, he was an abolitionist and he would just like get in a fight at the drop of a hat. He was just a hard ass. He was the bear Jew from Inglorious Bastards, you know? I love it. So, after Potawatomi. Let the terror begin. <laughs> the funny thing that happens after Potawatomi happens is that the South immediately does a 180 from calling abolitionists these like pushover pussies you know you can do whatever you want to them they don't believe in anything they have no spine right they switch to now it's basically the what republicans do with antifa like now you're the most dangerous existential threat you're a terrorist you're you know you need to be stopped um so what's the 18th uh, 19th century version of a concrete milkshake Ooh, uh, sassafras, um, uh, or a sarsaparilla, like a, a, a frozen sarsaparilla. Yeah, it's like that- sarsaparilla, but then inside of it is like, I guess, tar? Because they threw a lot of tar at people. <laughs> yeah. Like hot yeah. tar, you know? Carbonated tar. Yeah. That's not sarsaparilla in there. Check the jug. <laughs> he put a tampon in my molasses. there we go um so mahala doyle is the wife of one of the guys that the brown posse got and uh so she testified after this this is the exact quote from her from her uh testimony with an eye like a snake he looks like a demon Apparently a miserable outlaw, he prefers war to peace. That pillage and plunder may more safely be carried on. And this is the leader of the Free State Party of Kansas. So now he's a demon snake to these people, right? <laughs> Pretty cool. Demon snake. Nice. He's arrived with 20 sons. <laughs> each more vascular than the last. Yeah. <laughs> um... So this sort of became the myth that abolitionists have like secret military organizations now and that they're like banditti. They're savage. They flay people alive. They cut off your nose and your ears and they scalp people now since that's like a, you know, that's a thing that's happening at the time, I guess. Um, So let's see. John Brown and Wiener, uh, Theodore Wiener, immediately after Potawatomi hid in the woods. John Brown's favorite thing to do is hide in the woods. He, you know, picked it up from Nat Turner and from the Maroons and basically just decided that this is like like crucial to his plan and it's the thing God has been telling him to do his whole life is part of the attacks or you have to retreat into the wilderness because the wilderness is like put there for you, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all like to hide in the woods. Not not Anders. He'd be like, I'm so bored. Um, Anders, God put it there for you. Hide in the woods. Well, we went hiking last week, and uh, Naomi suggested that I listen to a podcast, which was the right call, but I felt like that was wrong. So I, I didn't. It was extremely, It's extremely boring if you're not listening to a podcast. If you listen to a podcast, maybe you're listening to this one as you're in the woods. It's a lot of fun. Well, you could listen to a natural podcast, i.e. the sounds of birds. Yeah. Mm. That's well, what it's trying it, to do, but uh, yeah. It, it wasn't the most exciting hike we went on. It was four hours. So Yeah. Also, Every yeah. hike is just walking in the woods. I mean, 
<laughs> you're either on yeah. board or not. <laughs> <laughs> you should do what you do walking regularly. And if you if you listen to podcasts when you do it, do it in the woods. Why don't we What's save this, convers- this argument for <laughs> It's mic. not about Anders. It's about John Brown <laughs> yeah. and the podcast he listened to in the woods. What would he have listened to? God. That's his podcast. Yes. Yeah. Godcast. That's the Instead of uh, guys we fucked, they had God we fucked. <laughs> God we praise. God save America. Ah. Yeah, there you go. The title that makes wow, sense. Wow, that would be a podcast name that makes sense. <laughs> Imagine that. Uh, or Goddamn America. He'll listen to our show. Okay. God save America. They'd be, they'd be like, I think we can work with Andrew Jackson. I really think he's got a good heart. <laughs> He's, God, he's those motherfuckers! Not to get sidetracked, but they were just like talking yesterday about like how Bernie got all of the Latino voters, and they were just like, "It's clearly oh, because yeah. he le- found leaders in the Latino community or whatever." It couldn't just be that people need to go to the hospital. Very annoying. Right? Yeah, it's kind of racist, is what I'm saying. It's like, oh yeah, no, they listen to we listen to Julian Castro or whatever, and you know. Right. Also, Who didn't even we... support Bernie Sanders? Right. Yeah, but by that logic, shouldn't well, Warren have won the Latino vote? They had Julian. Yeah. He's, you know, the savior. It was that one video that Bernie had with the the mariachi band I that went that. like semi viral. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, "Look, if we should have thought of that, that cost us the race." And you know, that's how that's how you win the game. Yeah, every Latino was like, "Is it my birthday?" Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Also, uh, am I on I, the train? <laughs> <laughs> it also had some to do. I mean, I know there's a lot of, you know, in places like Florida, there's you know, tend to be sort of right wingers in those communities. But like there are a lot of people I heard anecdotes about this who you would canvas and you would talk to like Latin American people and be like, oh, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, that's cool. Healthcare. And then they would tell them he opposed the U.S. In, uh, interventions in like El Salvador, Nicaragua in the 80s. And they'd be like, oh, fuck, yeah, I'm definitely going for them. Yeah. So that helped too. Why wouldn't it? Yeah. Crazy. Anyways, <laughs> we we can't talk about the Johns. We'll be here all day. <laughs> so, so after Pottawatomie, John Jr. was going insane in the woods. He basically was just shell shocked, and he was captured by a guy named Captain Henry Pate, a Southern gentleman, uh, military official. Right. So. Basically, at one point, hold on, let me see if I got this right. Pause for a second. One. So, yeah, John Jr. was captured by Pate, right? And then right after that, his elder son, Jason, was uh, discovered by the same captain. And when Captain Pate came upon Jason, Jason ripped his shirt open and yelled, I have never knowingly injured a human being. Now, if you want my blood for that, there is a mark for you. And then Pate captured him. Uh, but he gave him to this so guy named cool. Captain Wood. They're just <laughs> like, it's like the Flanders kids or something. Like, they're very naive, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here is lie my bare chest that you might reap it. <laughs> yeah, just like get in the wagon. So, yeah. get in the wagon. Pate uh, captures him and gives him to Captain Wood to be taken prisoner, and they're imprisoned together, John Jr. and Jason, right? But Jason's crazy at this point. Like, he's, like, not recovered from this bout of mania or whatever's happening, so they had to chain him up, and they trotted him behind the wagon with, like, 
and his arms tied behind his back, like um, you know, like when the guy tried to poison Daenerys, and they just fucking tie you to the back of a horse and they make you walk right. like barefoot or whatever. Uh, so they trot him to a camp where they chained John Jr. to a stake in the middle of the camp. And since he was so out of his mind, he believed himself to be the commander of the town and just would yell orders at people as they ran by him and stuff or as they just went <laughs> about their business. I'd just be like, very well, you know, <laughs> carry that pot of beans. <laughs> Wait, so what, what's his deal again? Is, he, is this just PTSD or he has like a mania? It's old timey, so I... Oh, no one knows. Yeah, no one knows. He just <laughs> okay. was crazy for, like, the, you know, the aftermath of the Potawatomi thing. Because his dad made him kill someone with a sword, you know? Mm. There were witches spotted in the area. <laughs> they shirk the light of the Lord. Yeah. So, John Jr. was charged with treason, but everybody else found John Brown's camp and reformed... Uh, the group with uh, Wiener, Augustus Bondi, a Hungarian Jew, and um, a carpenter. Oh, O.A. Carpenter was his name, who uh, gave them a ride to Prairie City to defend it from this Captain Pate guy, right? So there's just this weird southern guy suddenly in their whole, in this part of the campaign or whatever. Um, James Redpath, the reporter from the New York Tribune, happens upon the john in the woods roasting a pig he's got like uh john has like what this is john senior john brown he's just roasting a pig in the woods he's got white stubble he's got toes coming out of his boots and this guy Redpath finds him and interviews him for this newspaper the new york tribune i think it is in new york that's like one of the biggest abolition this newspapers in the country mm. Redpath goes on they have to all the abolition articles Redpath is Scottish, correct? Uh, sounds right. <laughs> Redpath. Yeah, so take it away, Anders. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a Native American. I know you're going to think I am by my name, but I'm a Scot. Redpath goes on to become his like biographer, I believe. So uh, he does an interview with him, and John Brown's like just running this camp in the woods and he'll give you like pig to eat and stuff but the rules are no swearing or drinking and, and stuff like that right so that's kind of happening and then what happens next is that this guy um I forget his first name his last name is Shore. this guy Shore comes to john brown and tells him that pate that guy has been raiding prairie city and the free staters are all rolling over, you know, and just like doing the Lawrence, Kansas thing, just letting him win. Right. So Brown gets his men and his crew together. And, um, let's see what happens here. Uh, he's in the safety of the woods, which God gave him. Yeah. And now he will strike. So they ride to Prairie city and they get in at four in the morning and, He's praying the next morning when Missourians attack. And when they attack the town and he's in church, he picks up his guns, which he has with him in church while he's praying. And he yells everyone, you know, we got to go battle. He calls for battle. 
And oh, it's like Boondog Saints. Yeah, it's fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> you need to explain this to Bostonians in a certain way for them to really wrap their minds around. <laughs> yeah, he's totally Boondog Saints, dude. He's like this weird pious warrior with like, you know, sometimes he uses like dual revolvers and shit. Um, nice. He calls for battle and he drives them out, killing three of them. And then he moves into Blackjack, which is this boggy swamp where he hears that Pate is. And Pate hears that a hundred abolitionists are coming. And that's not true. John Brown's got like 29 guys with him. But there's these like legends. All his sons. Yeah. (laughs) It's mostly him and his weird sons and his family and friends and shit. And then he's got some of this guy's Shores guys. But... You know, these legends are starting to build around him because that Potawatomi shit scared Southerners. So now they call him like they call him like old terrifier. And like they have all these weird nicknames for him and shit. And Snake Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> so Brown and his men sneak in and basically siege the part of this clearing where this Captain Pate guy is. And you know, they're just kind of locked in this back and forth shooting you know over rocks and shit and around trees and eventually some of brown's men don't think anything this is going to work so they kind of desert they like run off into this other part this other field and they're just like figuring out what to do how to make their next move so brown sees him and he runs across the field and he goes hey uh, i don't mind that you left i have an idea you should run over there and kill all their horses and mules right and they do it and then as all this chaos is breaking out, because this army has been, you know, kind of just like demobilized via all their horses and mules being murdered. Via Fred- horse murder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, stranded. So Frederick, Sorry. his uh, son, bursts into the field on Owen's horse, which is named Red Ned Scarlet, waving a That's sword. That's a good horse name. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So out of nowhere, this kid just bursts into the field waving a horse or uh, waving a sword on top of a horse, screaming, hurrah, we've got him surrounded. Come on, boys. We've severed communications. And then the Captain Pate surrenders immediately. And wow. it's a complete blow. I mean, when you hear something like that, I mean, what, what else can you do? <laughs> he said, hurrah, the horse is dead. Yeah. <laughs> the confidence on the man to scare him. Yeah. <laughs> he. Uh, That's classic deal making. That's deal making 101. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of like um, this thing that happens like around this time, you know, it just happened to like the American Revolution a lot where the one of the armies is doing like formal dually stuff and then he's like John Brown's just like a guerrilla psycho and so what happens after this is that they Pate sends a guy over to John's side of the army like to surrender and John just goes are you are you captain Pate the guy goes no and he goes fucking send him over here um he keeps one of the guys you know he put I see where this is going and then captain <laughs> Pate comes over and he tells him to surrender, and the guy's like, "All right, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that." And then, hang on, let me let me pause. So, Pate was not used to seeing such nerve and abolitionists. Brown and eight of his men went down to the wagon barricade, where Brown told Pate's lieutenant to command the pro-slavery troops, who now numbered twenty-three, to surrender. 
their arms. The lieutenant balked and looked at Pate, who Pate, who also hesitated. Brown quickly cocked a pistol and pointed it at Pate's head, hissing at, Give yep. the order! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Within seconds, the pro-slavery force handed over their weapons, which Brown's party loaded into wagons to be hauled away. And so, with only nine on his side, Brown took 23 prisoners, as well as camp provisions, and a few remaining horses. So, you know, he's basically just like, Who's fucking crazy? You know? <laughs> he, uh... <laughs> He's just kind of pulling shit that like they didn't expect from you know these abolitionists or whatever. So, I mean that's why they call him the plague of the whatever the old timey fucking name he has now. Yeah, <laughs> he's got a few of them. Like there's like there's like a lot of weird ones. Like old terrifier is a good one, and then I'll see if I can come across a few. Old terrifier, things. not a great nickname. <laughs> that seems like they could have yeah. spent a few more minutes in the shop on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Old scary, scary man, scary man, terrifying individual. <laughs> so all this happens. Uh, they take the weapons and the horses from Pate's army. All of this happens. He puts a gun to guy's head. He takes his weapons. He takes his horses. They win the battle. After the battle, Salmon was crippled by an event that was not combat related. It doesn't say what it was. I guess a wagon just fell on him or some shit. Infuriating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Salmon got a better gig off camera and uh, yeah. decided not to take part anymore. Yeah. So John Brown won blackjack, but he was forced by uh, the federal government basically to give up Pate and the spoils. So as he's marching his prisoners back into town to have them tried um the like the the feds basically stepped in and they took everything he won away from him uh but he took what part of this is legal like how does he get away with it at all once the feds are involved i, I think it's just really complicated because there's so little communication and like you know all this is such contested territory so all, there's all this stuff going on right. like laws being put into place but people arguing about whether it's even moral to uphold them like the Fugitive Slave right. Act or the fucking yeah. black laws and stuff. With all the lynchings, well, there's definitely like mobile violent mobs going around. But I think it's probably like the what we see when there's like a right wing uprising now, like a Bundy Ranch kind of thing where the feds come across 30 guys armed to the teeth and are like, we're going to take the stuff you stole and leave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You but have a lot me. of very slow guns. Yeah. <laughs> Scare us. <laughs> What's funny because around this time there was uh, American expansionism that was sort of like based on maintaining the status quo of like half slave state, half free state. And like we talked about this a little bit on the Mexican American War episode, but they would keep like expanding and say like we got a little little slave place here, a little free place here. Like they, they would keep having yeah. to do it like two at, two at the same just time. To just the to keep the representation. Right. Yeah. To maintain the stasis. Another thing that's happening is that um, depending on who's president and who's like governor of Kansas, for example, a lot of times someone who is maybe like a Democrat, but they're not a hardcore, you know, at the, at the time Democrats were like the other side or whatever. They're not like a hardcore pro-slavery person. They'll sort of step in when there's violence and say, um, 
you know, the, what is the, uh, the the fucking when you're like kind of forgiven for your debt or whatever? What, what is that word I'm looking for? Oh, jubilee. Absolved. There, yeah, it's there's like um a truce or whatever, basically where. He's saying, like, no one will be charged for anything as long as everyone just stops fighting because they just didn't know what else to do together. Everybody just get along. Yeah. <laughs> You're ruining Christmas. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, after this, Brown goes to Nebraska and he meets this guy named Aaron Dwight Stevens, a.k.a. Charles Whipple, which is his alias. He's a soldier turned deserter, turned Indian friend, turned free stater turned John Brown's lieutenant. So he started to like this next period of his life. He's starting to just like form his suicide squad. And it's interesting because they're not all like him. Like this guy is an agnostic deist who, you know, believes oh. in the the God of nature and he's a spiritualist and does seances and shit. And right. Oh, wow. Yeah. And like at one point Brown's pretty much the only like, Puritan or even Christian in his own posse, but he just doesn't really care because he believes in the yeah. And he picks up Boomerang Jack, the <laughs> meanest, the meanest criminal this side of Australia. <laughs> yeah, he returns to Lawrence. Um, John Junior is still in jail, and he forms a gang called the Kansas Regulars. Um, a <laughs> around this time. Violence is starting to really bubble up again on the pro-slave side. So, like, for example, one thing that happens is a pro-slave ruffian named Fugert is reported to have made a $6 bet in, like, a bar for beer, basically. Wow. Or whiskey. Like a million dollars in today's money. Right. That's, yeah. um, uh, he was he's sending his kids to NYU with that money. Yeah. <laughs> his fucking name is Fugert. He, uh... <laughs> He's, I can't stop thinking of Qbert. <laughs> <laughs> he basically stands up in the middle of the bar and goes, uh, I'll bet anyone $6 I can't scalp an abolitionist in two hours. And people throw down money, and then he walks out into the street, and he just like shoots a guy, and then cuts his fucking scalp off after he shoots him. And he comes back in. They got to stop accepting Qbert's bets. I mean, this is only encouraging... <laughs> That kind of behavior. <laughs> and he had no challengers. <laughs> Everyone was bored. <laughs> yeah. Uh, crazy shit like that. That is... might not even have been an abolitionist, first of all. <laughs> right. right, he just shot a guy. <laughs> um, if you're living in a slave society, the more people you shoot, the less, uh, right. you know, that's how you... <laughs> That's, what? <laughs> I'm trying to rationalize sense. mass murder. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking Kugert uh, uh, apologist. <laughs> As always, Anders. <laughs> Kugert. Um, so John Brown's heading towards Osawatomie because he deduced a pro-slavery attack. What happened there? This guy named General John W. Reed is leading an army to kill abolitionists and take Osawatomie, Topeka, and then Lawrence. That's Reed's ultimate plan. It's like this three-town sack. Uh, one morning, he comes upon Frederick, who's feeding horses at 6 a.m. at his uncle's house. Frederick walks out to greet him and goes, I know you. And is shot and killed in the chest by yeah. Reed, right? He also he says he's he says he's Frederick Brown. He like identifies himself. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. like, oh, you're a brown kid. 
Yeah. Uh, tisk. Yeah, the the, the, wow. the brown kids are so naive. They're like, "Hi, are you my friend? I'm one of the brown people, you know." Um, or the brown. I'm uh, Snake Eyes Junior. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So John Brown hears about it and he takes arms with his uh his guy this guy, this guy named Parsons who's never seen combat and when Parsons asks him his advice. Brown says, uh, take more care to end life well than live long. He says all this really intense shit throughout this. Right. Basically what he's saying there is like, if you get shot, die. You know, don't try to like drag it out because it's going to fucking hurt. It's better to anyway. burn out than to flame away. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Brown ambushes Reed in the woods, but has to retreat. And turn around past this river. And basically, when he's on the other side of the river, after he's attacked the guy and he's kind of put, like, a, you know, got a couple got a couple bullets in his army, got a little bit of a hit going, he has to go back and he sees Osawatomi, like, just burning. And as the city's mm-hmm. burning and smoldering, he says, God sees it. I have only a short time to live. Only one death to die, and I will die fighting for this cause. There will be no more peace in this land until slavery is done for. I will give them something else to do than extend slave territory. I will carry the war into Africa. It's a fucking crazy Wow. <laughs> what does that mean? So he's just doing poetry now. Yeah. Well, Apparently, like it was a code word for... For southern slave territory, Africa. Ah, really? Okay. Smart. Makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense because he did start to speak in code at this time. Also, for example, whenever he would talk about Harper's Ferry, which is the thing that he was starting to kind of plan—not in the open, but like he would speak about it to like his co-conspirators. He'd always refer to it in like letters as like the business or the mill, you know. So whenever he was like raising money for Harper's Ferry, he'd be like, "We almost, we uh, you know, we almost have enough money to start the mill." Wink, 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 wink. Yeah. <laughs> uh, quick, quick aside. I learned uh, over the weekend that we, the if this might be a good thing to know for uh, some of our African American listeners, but the country of Ghana. Is letting uh, is is encouraging Black Americans to move there, and they're like helping them um, to get like grants and stuff. Holy so, shit! Why get out of this hellhole? Then uh, <laughs> yeah. good opportunity. That's a real thing. Yeah, because uh, yeah, that was part of the Slave Coast. Um, like yeah, the the west uh, west coast of Africa. A lot of uh, slaves were taken from that area. So um, yeah, I recommend looking there. into you know everything involved into moving to another continent before you go do it but uh yeah. good luck. it'll probably be a little different um in a good way i think <laughs> i have no idea i know nothing about Ghana. i'm not going to touch <laughs> even, even in a... anders with the weekly Ghana update we get <laughs> i'm not going to tell anyone to go back to the oh, full you know. info Nope. Did you just tell people to go back oh, to Africa? Wow. Wow. He just keeps saying. No. Choose what you want to do. <laughs> do what you want to do. This is on the table. I because I want to I want to leave right. America. Well, Ghana's not gonna take you. Yeah. 
If if a, if a friendly listener takes me up on this offer, not takes me, takes Ghana up on this offer, uh, you might maybe they'll lend a hand one day when Anders Lee needs to get out of town. If you apply to move to Ghana, you need to record the entire process <laughs> because I want to be there. It's gonna be a deep lit level of Patreon. It's gonna be a five hundred buck a month listen. You uh, you have to skills. I can do a Scottish accent. <laughs> You have to record a comedy album for Netflix called uh, You Gonna Be Kidding Me. No. <laughs> I'm not. Don't blame me for that joke. That was, uh, what's her face? Chelsea. Uh, uh, no, that Chelsea. Yeah, Chelsea. Right. Those blonde lady comedians. Chelsea She's, Peretti? Peretti, yes. No. Thank no, no, you. no, 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 no. That wasn't her. Was that Handler? It wasn't her. It was Eliza Schlesinger. I think that's who it was. You gone <laughs> to be kidding me? Remember? All right. Chelsea Handler. Right. I'm gonna look it up real quick. <laughs> It is either way a different country. <laughs> Alas, it's, it's a book. It's a book by the Chelsea fans. Chelsea, uh, maybe we should. Oh, Chelsea fans! I thought Chelsea that was Hans. a special. That was like the name of a special. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I thought it was Peretti. No, uh, no. Yeah. You're... Anyway, John Brown is in a tough spot. All right. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. <laughs> All right. So we're after Osawatomi before Blackjack. No, Blackjack already happened. It was Blackjack and then... Okay, Blackjack's uh, over. This is basically... Wait, this is Osawatomi, I think, right? Well, here's what happens next, right? So as the city's burning, um, I forgot to mention it's at one point when uh, we were talking about Potawatomi, but um, John Brown has a friend, like a like an indigenous friend named Ottawa Jones, who he, like, when he's zipping around in the woods you know hangs out with and just i don't know just you you know they work together and stuff ottawa jones is a uh, a native american who had like run a hotel and his hotel was burned to the ground by pro slavers so he becomes kind of you know part of the abolitionist cause and he helps brown a lot well ottawa jones's house is burned down in osawatomi and um Let's see. So then John Jr. starts sending these letters, though. So basically, the thing about Osawatomi is that he didn't beat this captain, but he fucked him up pretty bad. And at that point, his myth had already been growing. And, you know, people are starting to hear about Potawatomi and Blackjack and stuff like that. So John Jr. starts sending his dad letters because I guess he's regained his sanity, but he's still just in jail. And he's telling him, like, dude, everyone is, like, terrified of you down here. Like, everyone is just speaking about you like you're this, like, werewolf, you know, just, like, stalking in the right. woods. And, like, I saw him kill, and like, 30 guys. And they're in jail. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he's hearing people, like, in the town and stuff. Because I think they just, like, throw you in a fucking, you right. know, th- They have stocks. him in a cage in the town square, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was, like, the closest they had to, like, medical help back then. <laughs> just put you in the stocks in the middle of town. Yeah. So Brown becomes famous, uh, and Osawatomi gives the free states, like, a sort of legitimacy. And they begin... To formally raid pro-slave towns and win. So this tips things to a certain degree. I guess if you're going to look at this in the grand historical sense in terms of like moving towards the Civil War. Before, Brown was a, you know, a lunatic and no one agreed with his violence and stuff like that or his theories on violence. And now this is starting to turn into, like we talked about, like the, the you know, the 
the legitimized violence, the idea of getting militias together and fighting against these towns that have been terrorizing you from in the name of the institution of slavery. That's just what happens when you win a little, I feel yeah. like. Yeah. Is it somewhat validated? But yeah, I think it also has to do with the uh, the Fugitive Slave Act and the enforcement of that. And and you know, and the Dred Scott decision making slavery legal. So everybody's feeling like uh, a little exasperated with the legal possibilities. Yeah, that right. is definitely like the other factor for sure. Um, and yeah, this is around the time when Frederick Douglass writes the ballot or the bullet. Yeah. Um, at one point, John Brown is like standing on a crate in the middle of a town explaining combat to a bunch of like, you know, newly radicalized people when there's this newly appointed governor Geary rides into town on a horse and he demands a truce on both sides. So that's what I was talking about earlier. Like there's people that come in and they just go like, okay, okay. Like we're not going to take a side here. You just have to stop fucking fighting. Um, so, uh, Brown flees to this town called, uh, Tabor, Iowa, that's an abolitionist town, and then he goes back to North Elba to see Mary and his younger kids, and eventually he makes it to Boston around 1857, and let's see, uh, in Boston, he meets a bunch of people who were like told the story of Blackjack, a child gives him money and just asks him to tell him, like, he's, he's like... Here's a dollar, Mr. Brown. Will you tell me a story about your childhood someday? And then, like, six months later, the kid gets this crazy fucking long, scrawling letter in the mail from John Brown. It's all misspelled and shit, because he doesn't really know how to write. Uh, He's kind of illiterate. (laughs) Well, There's nothing in the Bible that says you got to write. Well, also, like, a lot of the grammar and stuff wasn't fixed back then. It was just kind of like, make your own, you know, write how you freestyle. Yeah. Yeah. So around this time. That's a Boston thing. The kids that ask you your story. Oh, I'm so tired of it. (laughs) Um, So around this time, he starts to acquire his, uh, what's known as his secret six, which are his financial backers who are basically raising money for this project, Harper's Ferry. And a lot of them he meets in uh, the Northeast, you know, in New England around Boston and in Concord, right? Because Concord's where the fucking transcendentalists are. And it's really weird because, you know, if you know anything about the transcendentalists, right? Namely, the two big guys, Emerson and Thoreau, they are, you know, essentially just shitty, like, libertarian guys. Like... They're all about self-reliance and, you know, no government. And they're, like, doing things like going to – hanging out in the woods for a year and writing a book. Right. Yeah, but then having their sister deliver food to them. Right. (laughs) Having your wife. And there's, like, a legion of them. (laughs) 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 What's up? I'm here. I'm by uh, Walden Pond. Uh, (laughs) I'm eating my gloves. (laughs) 
I'm Big J Oak Tree person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's just roasting plants around around town. You're like, uh, I, I, I'll change. Uh, I'll change his. What is that? Is that like? Uh, is that like uh, your mother give you that name? <laughs> uh, 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 ferns, you ever? Hey, hey, Fern, Ferns, have you ever fucked an Asian? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know this one as yeah. the way the wind's blowing on you. You just hear the wind very strongly in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to go through them a little bit to kind of wrap our heads around this because it is weird that they became hardcore abolitionists and supporters of abolition because at first they were very racist. I mean, they probably still were even into the abolitionist stuff, but they were like, um, in their early writings of like Emerson and Thoreau, I mean, it was just, you know, right. just that shit where they would be like, he, look at him. He's not as developed as the the Caucasian right. male. He's an infant, you know? Um, right. I live in the suburbs. I think everyone likes me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's weird, cause I've heard different like s- sort of um, tales about, or not tales, but narratives about ab- the ab- the white abolitionist movement in North America. Because I have heard that that there was a lot of like paternalism and sort of uh, personal interpersonal racism against uh, black people. Like a lot of the um, abolitionists who supported and funded these causes were personally racist, uh, but sometimes I. According to Eric Foner, that gets somewhat exaggerated. Um, and like, there were a lot of people like John Brown uh, who who were not, who were were anti racist, who you know practiced what they preached. Yeah, it really just speaks to the atrociousness of racism, even just aesthetically, that you can be racist and still be like, we shouldn't do this. This is yeah. terrible. Yeah, I <laughs> right. mean, you know, it's kind of how yeah, I feel it's bad, about, like, but black people don't deserve that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, here's how I can relate to it. I think it's probably wrong to eat meat, but I do. Like, because unless yeah. they just fix the whole fucking farming thing in the industry and make it really easy and outlaw meat, I'm, you know, that's just part of my life I have decided uh, fucking not to really go that hard about, right? So I'm sure that there are just, like, mental gymnastics that you, everybody goes through or whatever. But that being said... You know, you're probably right about that. I am working off of this one book here, and right around this part, I really started to notice that this author seemed to have a lot of empathy for the transcendentalists, which gave me some pause about maybe what their own philosophy is, but they made a pretty good case for how the transcendentalists eventually became sort of radicalized. So, The Secret Six are uh, George Luther Stearns, Garrett Smith, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, Samuel Gridley, Howe, Theodore Parker, and the main guy is Frank Sanborn, Franklin B. Sanborn, right? Um, At what point John appeared before the Massachusetts State Legislature to appeal for a bill for funds to Kansas, gave a crazy speech, held up the shackles that John Jr. wore, um, told the story of Frederick being murdered, uh, and conveniently did not mention Potawatomi. So another thing that's happening <laughs> yeah. right now is he's got this skeleton in his closet, which is that he's starting to become a celebrity, and he's really downplaying, like, he's kind of trying to hide the Potawatomi thing because he's, I think, realizing, like, that was more murder than, like, political, <laughs> you know? 
it wasn't a battle yeah. per se. <laughs> yeah, people. Yeah, people were really interested in supporting the the Free Soilers movement in Kansas and winning that state over. Right. It was, and at that time, a uh, little after. Well, yeah, it was after Potawatomi, but there was uh, a play that came out, and it, I think it was on Broadway by a, um, a another play. Huh. <laughs> Another play. <laughs> play. Yeah, but by it was called uh, Osawatomie Brown, um, and it was about John Brown, and it was like had just happened uh, the Potawatomi, you know, killings, and 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 they staged it. It was like th- this is like our late breaking news, you know, as if you know, like a plane crash somewhere, you, you had to get the act like actors and come to reenact it uh, ASAP. Wow. Oh no, the plane. <laughs> <laughs> no plane. I don't know. I'm trying to think of a current event that uh, people would reenact in the way cuz you can't really reenact the coronavirus in a very exciting <laughs> no. way. But well, I guess you that's can if what you make w- a song about it. Yeah, that's yeah. what they would have done. The fucking yeah. sh- everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> the virus is everywhere. <laughs> No, man. Articles on my face. I want to write a the musical chaz. about chaz. the fucking yeah. chaz. That would be so fun. That's what they oh, would have had that. to do in in yeah. the 19th century is just act it out. Yeah. Yeah. I fully support a jazz musical. I want to get that off the ground <laughs> as soon as we can. What watching Hamilton made me kind of have musical brain, but like I was like, oh, this sucks, but I want to write a better one, you know? Mm. I watched yeah. Sweeney Todd recently, <laughs> and they don't even try to rhyme in that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The musicals are such bullshit because like a lot of the times they're not rhyming and they're barely singing they're just like this music and now some expositive dialogue about how we need to get to the next thing and then they just look at each other like that. <laughs> fucking weird they call my son mad they lock him in the town yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh after he gave that speech to the government the bill failed uh so he wasn't able to formally raise money for kansas for the free state cause in that particular instance uh but he sort of started to basically just try to start forming his own posse and funding harper's ferry he kind of got to that point by realizing that like he kind of he they didn't need him in a lot of the militia stuff anymore. I don't know. It's kind of an interesting dynamic with it. But one of the things he's doing right now is like like putting together money to make gear for the raid. So he finds this blacksmith and he explains to him that he wants to make pikes out of like these like basically you take a pole and you weld a goddamn buoy knife to the top of it to make like like a fucking pike, which is cool cuz it's got the the Bowie knife is a particularly like American spin on it. Um, Damn. Money gets caught up with his blacksmith because he can't quite pay him for him. And so they're, they're just getting shipped around, you know, not assembled and stuff. The blacksmith is just doing ads now. Like due to a shipping error, I am loaded up with Bowie knife pipes. <laughs> <laughs> they're on sale. <laughs> um. I don't know why I wrote this down. I think I just thought it was funny. So one of the Secret Six, Parker, once published in all caps, One held against his will has a natural right to kill everyone who seeks to prevent his enjoyment of liberty. So they were, yeah, they were libertarian fucking cucks. Um, Pretty cool. Yeah. Emerson 
you know, like in his early days, would call all abolitionists angry bigots. And uh, he said that in, in self-reliance, he called abolitionists angry bigots. But it, later on what? in a work he, he wrote called Courage, later in his life, he called John Brown Jesus Christ. Like he just compared him to the Lord. Yeah. Owned. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Wait. Well, mainly because John Brown got popular later. <laughs> right. Just um, like who are they bigoted against, supposedly? Yeah. Other whites? I'm very locked into this thing I thought of of calling abolitionists anti slaw. <laughs> <laughs> I in my notes I call them abos, but it sounds like <laughs> I mean in many ways they were sort of similar, like the Underground Railroad in particular is very similar to Antifa and then it's like sort of decent it was very decentralized like it was you know with the history of it of course is important and interesting but it wasn't like this you know really fastidious uh well-organized system it was just like a very loose network of a few people uh, oh yeah i mean there's i hate to say it because this is you know pretty basic take but there's a lot of parallels here with like the way that they went from treating abolitionists as like cowards to an existential threat and right with all the stuff that's coming out of these fucking these, these transcendentalists and people um it's pretty uh helpful to think of though because uh, uh right now with antifa i feel like it's easy to get uh, uh to despair the lack of organization but if you look at something like the underground railroad that's like a completely decentralized thing that was very helpful to people Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, a precursor to the larger, you know, systemic inevitable change, which was the war. You know. Yeah. The war was also helpful. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to the war. Well, I mean, I guess that's why I'm kind of got this stuff on the brain right now is because I'm like, these are the conditions that preceded the Civil War. Like, <laughs> yeah. what's going to yeah. happen next right now? You know, because so much of the stuff like echoes. <laughs> As federal agents <laughs> are descending <laughs> on our cities. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. to our podcast. Learn, learn karate if you can. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thoreau wrote, the Indian does not often dance unless it is the war dance. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> They were also really racist towards the Irish at this time. I know it's a thing that like angry white guys always say, but they also just they didn't like them either. It's, it's they I mean, say it it's yet. true. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they've been through so much. <laughs> we were still, you know, on the rim of the melting pot. We hadn't like totally plopped in and gotten right. melted. It took around seventy-five years of being cops before they were just like, "Yeah, yeah you're white now." Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> um, one thing that was cool about Brown is that he kept that Captain Pate's Bowie knife on his leg, like after he took it from him. He managed to keep that, even though they took all the spoils away from him. And uh, yeah, I mean, Brown just turns into a hardcore motherfucker after this. It's pretty cool. Um, he goes, <laughs> wait a minute, let me fucking pause so I can find this. Some more stuff about the transcendentalists. In the early going, transcendentalism was closely allied to non-resistance. Br- uh, Bronson Alcott attended conventions of Garrison's Peace Society, who was the big, uh, you know, pacifist uh, enemy of John Brown ideologically. Stating in his diary, I regard non-resistance as the germ of the new church Alcott instituted versions of non-resistance at the Temple School, 
where naughty students were asked to punish their teachers. (laughs) (laughs) What? This is what I'm saying. This is just like the libertarians with their weird-ass schools that we talked about. Yeah. Yeah, but um, this is also like John Brown's thing when he when he beat his kid, he would give him give the kid the switch and say, "Yeah, really? Yeah, we went shit. over it in oh, part yeah, two. That's right. <laughs> there was some weird shit going on with kids on all sides of this. Um, there's bad kids on all sides. So yeah, uh, I guess to kind of sum up what I think happened though with them and why they became so enamored with them is that Brown appeared in Concord, and he started speaking, and they all just had these, like, you know, these, like, experiences, I guess, where they were just, like, so taken by this guy's speaking and his ideas being radical. And it probably didn't hurt that he was some crazy white guy, you know, who they were able to project a lot of, like, respect onto and stuff. Um, But he basically came at a time where... He appealed to, like, I guess what they saw as this individualism, even though it's really not. I mean, he's, you know, kind of an altruist. Uh, but they also liked that he was so into nature because <laughs> he would, like, you know, take care of, like, horses and sheep and shit. And, and he had that whole thing where he's like, God, you know, wants me to live in the woods and stuff. So they saw that as, like, this um, serendipitous <laughs> message of, like, oh, he's like us. He gets... He gets nature, you know, because they were. I love the yeah. woods. <laughs> yeah, that's great. The woods is great because their yeah, whole plantations thing is, ruin the woods. Yeah, <laughs> they would go on, you know, these walks and then write about like how that, you know, isn't the government like an owl that won't stop hooting at you? You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> In a way, leaves our slaves. <laughs> <laughs> um, they also liked him because around this time. Oliver Cromwell, who was his hero and who he talked about, was someone who's being really rehabilitated by this author named Carlisle. He just had this famous biography put out where they he sort of posed just an argument of like you know the the part where um, you know where Cromwell killed a bunch of fucking Irish Catholics just for being Catholic. They started to compartmentalize that, I guess, the same way that they compartmentalized right. John Brown's violence. And like right. even the Potawatomi right. stuff, they were just like, yeah, it's a byproduct of like this otherwise good thing. I don't know, sometimes people get killed or whatever. <laughs> um, but the main thing is that in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed right before they met John Brown, right? And so I think it primed them on this issue because none of these motherfuckers ever hated slavery until the federal government told them, uh, you know, that you have to enforce it, basically. So yeah, they're like right. contrarian. Each person is responsible for like right. finding the fugitive slaves. And- yeah, and that put them in a situation to think, like, to be in opposition to the federal government and it being the thing that... All of a sudden, slavery is not framed as like this individual rights thing, right? It's framed as like yeah. 1984, the government is making you participate in it and then brown comes along and for whatever reason i guess that's the the argument at least this book poses which i think makes kind of sense but who the fuck knows you know yeah like slavery was just sort of um a given until this this uh law reveals that uh, this ruling reveals that like oh no this is this doesn't come out of nowhere this is something that the state sort of procures and supports and our economy fucking runs on and uh 
doesn't have to be necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it's also like this weird shit you see with conservatives and like masks right now, where if it's like, if you tell them they, they're not allowed to wear masks, they're like, fuck you, I'm going to wear a mask. But then if the government is like, you know, hi, I'm the president, you have to wear a mask, they're like, fuck you, I'm not going to, you know, there's just, right. you know. You got to do reverse psychology on them. Yeah. You got to be, you got to tell, uh, you got to start like saying that masks are racist or like trying to yeah. cancel masks. Yeah. yeah. So that, like black, somehow black mask is, is the same as black face. Right. Something and like that. Wear black, mask. black mask is the same as black face. You took the words out of my mouth. <laughs> That's a famous uh, France Fanon book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let them wear masks if. You know, let them right. be racist. I, yeah, I think we're onto something here. Am I triggering you with the half of my face that's covered? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I made a joke about basically that a long time ago. Got the government called on me. Let people be racist. All right. Um, you know, if it helps. So around this time, he's starting. To, he's trying to raise money for Harper's Ferry, and uh, he starts to develop this black sense of humor. Um. He starts to say things like, here are 18 lives. I should hate to spoil these carpets, but you know I cannot be taken alive. I can't remember what the fuck this was in context. Oh, of. yeah. He, yeah, he was staying with, um, I forget who he was staying with as a guest. Um, and because he was basically a fugitive at this point, like yeah. there were people in the South who wanted him dead and they wanted to capture him while he was, you know, giving speeches at, at the Massachusetts legislature. But they uh yeah he was staying at somebody's house and he's like i should hate to spoil your carpets because uh they won't take me alive that's right because he's saying like if they fucking come get me i'm gonna bleed all over the place <laughs> yeah so he starts to become kind it's of it's pretty cool that like he can have openly have waged three battles against towns won them and then go teach at a college, and there's no federal infrastructure to be like, yeah, this guy murdered a hundred people. That's the thing, dude. He's like, when he goes, when he's in the South, he's like Omar, like from The Wire. Like, they're like, he's like, he's technically an outlaw, but they run and shit when he's like walking around. And then when he's in the North, he's just like a celebrity and stuff. It's really cool. And he just starts saying like all this. I wrote down so many of these lines because they just remind me of like, well, you know, that like uh, you come for the king, you better not miss like that fucking thing from the wire. Yeah. Um, Good line. So he returns to Kansas, kind of broke. He's got some funds. Uh, George Stearns is buying him a ton of revolvers. He just has tons and tons of revolvers being shipped to him. And uh, yeah, this was the myth of Beecher's Bibles, apparently. Right. Like the. Yeah. What happened? There was a. So Henry Ward Beecher, this preacher in um, in New York, he would raise money for John Brown and supposedly ship uh, rifles in or guns in cutout Bibles. Oh, badass. The size of the Bible you would need to put a rifle in. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's definitely not a rifle. It's a revolver. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's got, it has all the words. You're going to love this four-foot-tall Bible. I lost my glasses. I need some big print. Yeah. yeah really big print Bible. It's a children's storybook. Giant book. You can hear the metal clanging. Oh, that's, that's God. Um, I... Around this time too, he was like staying in a judge's house 
in Massachusetts. Oh yeah, like, that's where he said I, I'd hate to spoil. The oh right, that's okay. What it was. Uh, yeah, he also stayed in 1858. I don't know if we're there yet with Frederick Douglass. Yeah. Um, uh, were you going to talk about that? I can't remember. I'll see if I have some notes on it, but if I don't, go ahead and chime in. I, I do. Um, yeah, I so bet they got up to some wild stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Freddie D. And uh, so John Brown, along with, I guess, the total shift in the movement, uh, definitely had an influence on Douglass because he was he, he was you know, a pacifist. And then now he started to talk about how important agitation was and how around this apartment, Frederick Douglass is known as Freddie D just to clarify. Freddie D. Yeah. She did say that. And I was like, that sounds like the way Anders would say it, but I, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's definitely something I've subconsciously taken from Anders and I regret it. Um, it's just you in front of like a class of 14 year olds like freddie d what's your favorite <laughs> work of his yeah so he stayed with frederick for a month and you know kind of like as like rented a room there and he would speak with uh frederick douglas every day about kind of building a militarized part of the underground railroad around where Harper's Ferry was like, and he believed like once he got this area fortified in the mountains, then you could set up this society and he wrote this constitution and he would talk about this constitution daily of this new society and it started to bore Frederick Douglass (laughs) horribly and he couldn't stand it. And then uh, he would also talk about his military plans and um, Douglass wasn't that interested in it, but his kids would gather around and he would show the maps and, and like plan out his attacks with blocks and stuff. And Douglass's kids were into it, but not Douglass. But what Douglass said around this time was that I'm, you know, I'm willing to speak for the slave, but John Brown is willing to die for the slave. And he admired him for that. Right. Okay, I remember it. I had a note about that, which is that when Brown lived at Freddie... I wrote Freddie D in my notes because I remembered when John Brown <laughs> lived at Freddie D's house, um, he wrote his own constitution <laughs> for his new America, basically, that he envisioned after his little revolution. And uh, it was presented by his own lawyer as proof of his insanity in his courtroom because it was <laughs> bad shit crazy, I guess, at least for the time. Um, so that's another thing about Brown that's kind of interesting is that he uh, he he was kind of a patriot. Like, he, he wasn't, like, for the overthrow of the United States. He was just, like, he would argue that, like, the Constitution is actually really good and implies that everyone's equal it's just that the government in place right now is misinterpreting it. And so when he did sort of form like, you know, very democratic debates and meetings with intellectuals and, you know, he included a lot of black leaders, he would argue with them because they would want to overthrow America and just start a new country. And he would say, you know, no, 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 no. It's just, we're going to just re kind of write the constitution, but he kind of was a constitution guy. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also part of John Brown's appeals. Like, because there's so much infighting between abolitionists, they were like, Oh, we can get behind this guy because you know, he's so crazy. 
And it, it seems like there <laughs> wouldn't have been that much of a contradiction back then between like violence and reforming the law. Cause like, you know, that's kind of how shit went down in the early mm-hmm. parts of this country, militias and yeah. stuff like that form different, you know, I mean, if you look at people who want to get rid of America now, what's the first thing they say is this country was founded by slave owners, whereas in 1850s, slavery is legal. So you just be like, we fucked the law up. Let's redo it. Yeah. Um, He has this British drill instructor he hired to. Oh, yeah. uh, (laughs) You know, to to, just like drill his troops and stuff. And uh, the guy kind of becomes more and more of a pain in the ass and is, like, collecting a paycheck and not really doing anything. And he lets him go. And this proves to be probably, if there's a major factor other than just his raid not working, maybe the thing that brought him down. Because this guy then gets pissed off. Forbes is his name. Forbes, that's what it was, yeah. He and he fought um, in the Italian Revolution, right? With Garibaldi, eighteen forty-eight. Yeah, uh, but he's really just kind of out for money. And after he's sort of doesn't like John Brown anymore, he's going around from town to town trying to get people to like trying to get like judges to 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 sue John Brown, you know, to give him his money back and stuff that he feels slighted on. And he starts telling people about the Harbor's Ferry raid. So this really fucks up the plan of the raid because now some people are aware or at least suspect that he's planning it. So secret's kind of out. Um, yeah. And it has to be delayed for a year. Right. Yeah. The other thing about Hugh Forbes is like, so uh, Brown had this like military camp planned in Iowa where he would train people. But as he's trying to recruit people, like Kansas kind of has this influx of uh, thousands of immigrants and free soilers. So it looks like Kansas is going to be free state. It's no longer kind of a battleground. And uh, people, you know, it, there's less fervor for that fight and therefore less recruits. And uh, Hugh Forbes shows up to this training camp where, and he was also like supposed to write a drill manual for guerrilla warfare or something. Yeah. And he shows up and just then nobody's there. And like, like maybe 20 people are there and he comes to collect, collect his payment. And, you know, Brown doesn't have anything. Mm. right yeah because brown you know was always pretty hard up for cash and then like even when he was hitting up the secret six they often you know would not be able to give him as much money as he wanted for this thing i mean at the, the numbers i don't really know exactly the inflation or whatever but he was asking for like a thousand dollars here and there which i can't imagine was a small amount of money back then yeah 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 um so he's, I mean, if we consider six is enough to send your child to NYU, <laughs> yeah, yeah, a thousand. You send your That's 20 like children. <laughs> <laughs> it's one yeah. for every one of his children <laughs> that hasn't been murdered yet. <laughs> so he's got this like crew of people that he's sort of organizing for the Harper's Ferry raid that doesn't happen, and so they, you know, they get dispersed for the most part after. Uh, he delays it for a year, but something that's interesting about them is that they're agnostics, deists, and they they said that they sat around at night and they would discuss things relevant to the times like ventriloquism, 
earthquakes, <laughs> necromancy, electricity, what happens after you die, mesmerism, and astronomy. And he also was very adamant that no one was allowed to drink in his gang or swear. And like, if you you know found yourself uh, like hitting on a woman or something, you'd have like mock trials for people having like you know ungodly attractions yeah. <laughs> and shit. He's a fucking. You have thing. been accused. Of going to get that goop. <laughs> um, Man, the necromancy part is so good. Yeah. Compared with what what happens when you die, with the <laughs> with the with the with the like unspoken part being assuming a necromancer doesn't get your body. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I mean, then we know what happens. <laughs> the other thing I think it's really yeah. funny is that given the times. There was like this table reading stuff going on, and there was like phantasmagoria is a really interesting thing, which is the practice of um, what happened. What you do is if you were one of these traveling entertainers, you would take really, really early projector technology on the road, and then you would go and tell a ghost story in like a you know a little saloon at night. And when you got to the part with the ghost, you would kick on the projector, and these people had just never seen a fucking projector before, and so it would look like there was a ghost, you know? So there was less of an understanding of, like, oh, that's how you do that, right? And so you were able yeah. to trick people and entertain them with really rudimentary stuff. So the ventriloquism thing is really funny because, like, there's a chance that they were like, do you think the little man is haunted, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like they didn't understand, he wasn't moving his lips. I don't know. Um, his constitution reformed the U.S. Constitution, but with ra uh, racial equality, um, murder and rape were punishable by death. But it outlawed drinking, it outlawed drinking and cursing federally in the Constitution. You can't curse. Filthy conversations. Really. Uh, it made mandatory like couples therapy. <laughs> like you couldn't get divorced. Couples <laughs> therapy. Like if you were get, uh, uh -oh. in a couple, you had to try to stay together. I guess was part of his constitution. <laughs> right. Um, and it's it, but, the no divorce part. But here's what's cool: it also encouraged people to open carry. So you can't curse or fuck, but you can keep that thing on you. You know. Right. Oh wow. Just as pleasurable. You can just love your gun. That's it. Yeah. Anyways, to love a gun. After Forbes ratted on him, he that's when he grew the huge beard and he started using the alias Nelson Hawkins. <laughs> so What wasn't that like a neighbor of his in near Elba? That sounds about right. What would yeah. you have to do to be <laughs> like John Brown's alias. I mean, that's like a really bad guy to steal your name at this yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was like a family friend. So I, I don't imagine that uh, Nathaniel enjoyed that. <laughs> your bush is over the property line. <laughs> See you, Nelson. Um, he met Harriet Tubman and he fucking loved Harriet Tubman, but... He thought that she was so tough and so cool, and she also carried a revolver and stuff, if you've never heard that little tidbit of history, uh, that he referred to her with male pronouns and called it, yeah. him the general. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's like one of those too woke kind of things where yeah. Yeah. it becomes it offensive again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> I respect you so much. I'll call you a man's pronoun. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean, he's acquiring these people. This guy named Martin R. Delaney. This guy named Stuart Taylor. All these young, like cool, yeah. up and coming assassins and he stuff. He couldn't get Harriet Tubman though. He was trying to get that. Like he was trying. That would have been a good get for him. Probably would have helped if he didn't stop. You keep misgendering her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent positive of how the story ends, but you know, it's probably better for her. She didn't join up. Yeah. Yeah. For Do sure. we know Harriet Tubman's pronouns? I mean, oh, we know. oh great Question. point, Anders. It's possible. Anders, you're a good friend, Harriet. <laughs> it's possible that that was just Harriet Tubman's pronouns, but everyone else was going like, woke and John Brown was cool. But, you, you know, you, you, who knows? Right. John Brown was the only one who listened. <laughs> just, you just say they. Just say they. Say they. Okay, I'm um, a male Harriet. <laughs> 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 Um, he has this Chatham convention. Oh, also, he he fucking got these two guys into his gang who were a pair of violent Quaker brothers. So they were like the only Quakers that actually believed in taking up arms and like killing people and shit. And they were brothers. Pretty cool. The Copic brothers. Pretty cool. Um, yeah, but like we said, Harper's Ferry is delayed after the Chatham convention. The Chatham convention was a convention he had where he, you know basically talked out his constitution with a bunch of black intellectuals and abolitionists and stuff. And, um, you know, but after Forbes ratted on him, he basically had to, to replan and disperse. And, uh, John Brown went to Lawrence and, uh, took up the alias Shubel Morgan, starting a little militia called the Shubel Morgan's men. So he just has all kinds of fake names and shit. He, Got involved in politics in Kansas a little bit to throw off the scent of his plans in Virginia. Uh, let's see. In Kansas, a southerner named Charles A. Hamilton slaughters five free state settlers, providing John Brown with a reason to basically rehearse for Harbor's Ferry. Um, so instead of outright violence, he forms his little Shubel Morgan's company, uh, which is like a protection unit. Which, again, no cussing, no intoxicating beverages, but you're a gang and you can kill people if you need to. They come upon the Reverend Martin White, who's the guy who killed... I'm sorry, earlier I said it was Pate that killed uh, his son Frederick. It was this guy named the Reverend Martin White. Um, John Brown decides not to kill him, but only because he was saving up for Harper's Ferry, really. Although he's also got like this. Weird... I'm saving my kill load. <laughs> <laughs> so I bust hard on the Harper's Ferry. Yeah. <laughs> he's also got the kind of a weird morality about him, though, where sometimes he says, like, you know, I, no, my job is not to kill you. You know, you're not doing the yeah, thing right now. He wasn't now. in the mood. Yeah. Um, he founds this group called the Black Strings, which are an underground railroad coordination group with like secret handshakes and signs and shit. And they wear black strings on their like shoulders or whatever to, to signify, you know, that they work together to, you know, just to fil- facilitate and protect the underground railroad. And everyone else is like, why are you? Why do you have those black strings on your shoulders? And they're like, I'm goth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm goth. <laughs> it's a. Psych Garage Rock Fusion Band. Yeah. Have you heard of Shoegaze? 
Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking black keys. Nope, I got it wrong. Yeah, okay. I was also. Thinking. I was thinking of yeah, a way to get them in there. I just think of the fringes on like leather jackets. Is that what it looked like, I or mean, were they longer strings? I have no idea. I'm more curious what their gang signs were. That sounds badass. <laughs> right. String. We'll make a W like with our fingers. <laughs> 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 or we don't like slavery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, something interesting happened to us where he made it back to Potawatomi and he found out that the people who lived there were totally down with the murders he committed. And I think that probably was a big load off his mind because he clearly had been like wow. stressing out about this, but it really reinforced his plan for Harper's Ferry, uh, which is when he started referring to it as the mill <laughs> in all of his letters. Um, Historically, I mean, like if you look at just like killers in terms of their validation, almost no one goes back to the place they did a murder and is like, everyone loved it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they all thought I was right. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So the next thing that happens, which would be kind of where we round out today, um, is that this guy named Jim Daniels is an escaped slave posing as a broom salesman. Uh, he comes to Brown and his friend Aaron Stevens and tells him this story that uh, that basically he, him and his wife have escaped from slavery and they're being hunted by slavers and they're going to be brought back to Texas and possibly killed. So he decides to you know rehearse a little bit, keep himself in uh, practice, and he goes on a mission to to basically fuck up this you know this general by stealing a bunch of slaves from him. And helping this guy like steal back his wife. I honestly, I think this might be what Django Unchained is based on, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so they go raid the two slavers in Missouri, and when, <laughs> uh, when let's see, when he when John Brown gets to one of the guys' houses, the guy basically says like, you know, what are you gonna do about it? And Brown says, "We'll smoke you out," and the guy surrenders because he knows it's John Brown. Yeah. This guy Aaron Stevens. Dingo. Yeah. <laughs> this guy Aaron Stevens goes went to one of the other plantations and he says he's looking for this uh this slave and the guy the slaver invites him in and he shuts the door behind him and then he notices that the slaver locks the door and the slaver pulls a gun out, but before he can gun out, pull the gun before he can shoot Stevens. Stevens fucking pulls his out first and shoots the guy to death. It's pretty cool. Wait, what happened? Sorry, this this shit. So his friend Aaron Stevens, this other abolitionist, goes to free a slave, and he goes into the plantation owner's house, or he goes up to the plantation owner outside. The plantation owner invites him in and says, "Well, let's talk about this." And he correctly surmises that the guy's inviting him in so that he can lock him inside his house and kill him. So he fucking pulls his gun out Ooh. and kills the guy first because he like catches him reaching for his gun. Oh, nice. Aaron Stevens is the most like, yeah. Do you know Aaron Stevens? Like, like name? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's a comic. He uh, killed that slave owner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Total Aaron Stevens move. This is all in Missouri, mind you, which was the border ruffian state that was trying to take over Kansas. But 
like Naomi said, after a while, Kansas started to like become filled with free soilers and stuff. So Kansas basically became, you know, a state that was going to be admitted into the union as a free state, as a, you know, no slavery state. And Missouri is still kind of fighting for slavery at this point. And their governor puts a $3,000 hit on John's head. And President Buchanan adds another $250 onto it. So Brown's like now a national fugitive. And he simply responds, I will not be taken. So he's just becoming this like hard ass at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but after Brown steals these slaves what he does is instead of even using the underground railroad he just starts marching like in public with his 11 slaves through the woods just through fields and shit through towns back up to canada because he's got these guys with just their fucking guns out the whole time essentially going like what are you going to do about it and he comes upon there are people that have a hit out on him who actually did not even attack him because they thought that couldn't be him because that's such a crazy, bold way to be walking around. Like, they just thought, oh, like, I must yeah. own those slaves or something. And yeah. <laughs> Going for a jaunt with his slaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but because of the shockwave that this mission sent through that community of slavers, Missourians start selling their slaves because they're afraid this John Brown like terrorist guy is going to come free them and if he frees them you'll lose money right so they don't free their slaves they just sell them so that they just have the money and then they just hope like I don't know maybe somebody will kill them or something right also you know they don't want to be murdered yeah (laughs) yeah um this other thing happens called the Battle of the Spurs, where Stevens, Aaron Stevens takes Woodsman, uh, takes, oh, he takes this guy. So they they bested this uh, this captain in Woods, right? And he takes his men t- back to a cabin and comes out with a gun. Um, hang on, what the fuck? Were the slaves? Or were they like, oh, this is the worst? Were they tired? <laughs> um. <laughs> So that guy Jim Daniels uh, went and found his wife. I think her name was Jane, and they had a child on the caravan back to Canada, and they named it John Brown Daniels. So, okay, so I forgot. Here's what I was getting at. On the way back, the caravan basically back to Canada, uh, like a number of different things happens. One of them is that uh, so this guy Aaron Stevens runs into this captain named Woods, and Woods is like take me to where you're keeping the slaves and he goes okay i'll take you there follow me and he walks them over to this cabin that he's keeping these slaves in and he goes hold on i'll be right back out with him so stevens walks into the cabin then he just comes out with a fucking rifle in his hands and uh the fucking guy just goes okay i get the message and he leaves right he just scares the shit out of him with his gun it's pretty cool but later on the caravan runs into that same captain woods right and this, this time he's got like 80 men with him and he charges them, um, or I'm sorry, they charge him, like, just fearlessly, directly fucking forward, which is, like, kind of an unheard of thing, battle-wise, at this point. And because they scare the shit out of this pro-slave captain so hard, he starts, like, um, scaring his own horses and stuff, 
And so, like, his own men are running and jumping onto the backs of other guys' horses that already have, like, a guy on it and shit, or, like, horses that don't have a saddle on it. And their spurs are basically just, like, agitating their horses. So the fucking horses just go running, like, off in different directions. People are falling off of them, being dragged around and shit. That's why it's called the Battle so of the Spurs. what you're describing is a, a horse tragedy. <laughs> well, the horses aren't, like, killed. They're just, like... You know, you you spurs really are peeved. spurs are like <laughs> they go in the back of your fucking boot, and then you like kind of use it to poke the horse, which makes it run. But since they freaked out and they were jumping on him and accidentally poking him, they were caught. They, it was like slapstick shit. They were just like falling off of their own horse. Remember that horse that had that cop on the back of it and it hit that fucking stop sign or whatever in England a few months ago? Yes, I do remember that, yeah. That was what happened, basically. It was the, this, but all over America. Yeah. There's just three amigos all over there. Um, let me find this last bookmark. Brown's group labored across the rain-swelled stream. Their would-be captors took flight, seized by panic. They dug their spurs into the horses. Some soldiers, having lost their horses in the trees, leaped onto already mounted horses, sitting on the animals' rumps behind their comrades. One terrified man grabbed the tail of a passing horse and was dragged off. Those of Brown's men who had horses chased... Uh, who had horses, chased the enemy for six miles, returning with four prisoners and five horses. Meanwhile, Brown had gotten the fugitive's heavy wagon across the creek by having it pulled with long ropes, right? So the Battle of the Spurs bolstered the already powerful John Brown legend, as one newspaper said in the report of the battle. Old Captain Brown is not to be taken by boys. <laughs> and he cordially invites all pro-slavery men to try to take their hands at re arresting them. So the newspaper is now saying, this man cannot be taken by boys. We need men to fight him. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Brown's bravado, however, was not accompanied by vindictiveness towards his enemies. He treated his prisoners kindly, as he would during the standoff at Harper's Ferry. To lessen the possibility of his five prisoners escaping, he had them walk instead of ride. But to console them, he walked with them, using the opportunity to lecture them on the wickedness of slavery. He reprimanded <laughs> one of his men who taunted a prisoner, explaining the cowardice of harming a defenseless person. Angry prisoners who spouted oaths prompted Brown's remark, Gentlemen, you do very wrong thus to take the name of God in vain. Besides, it is very foolish, for if there is a God, you can gain nothing by such profanity. And if there is no God, how foolish it is to ask God's curse on anything." This is reasoning for why you shouldn't say, like, goddamn or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I'm sold. I think he's going to end slavery. <laughs> <laughs> thereafter, he had a hand in it. <laughs> thereafter, the prisoners joined Brown's group in the morning and or in the morning and evening prayers. So he convinced them by yelling at them to join in the prayers that he did in the morning and evening. One of the five, described as a wild, rattling, devil-may-care kind of fellow, confessed that he knew no prayers. Brown pressed him, saying that his mother must have taught him some prayer. To the, mu to the amusement of all, he recited, Now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> yeah. From Metallica, he said. <laughs> After being wow. released, the man reportedly declared that Brown was the best man he had ever met, and he knew more about religion than any other man. The prisoner, though, admitted... <laughs> <laughs> it did go against a little, a little against the grain to eat and be guarded by the damned. 
And then he said the N-word. Okay, so... Uh, The last thing I'll say before we really get into the next episode of Harper's Ferry is that basically this guy's just turning into this character at this point that is like it's a it's cowboy shit like at one point he's in this town and he walks upon this guy and there's this dude standing on a crate because that's just how you speak to groups of people around this time standing on the crate. And he's yelling at everyone in the town. He's going, this John Brown is such a coward. He hides in the woods. If I ever saw him with my own eyes, I'd kill him on sight. And Brown's standing right next to him. And he goes, what's your (laughs) luckiest day? Because you just fucking found me. And he hands the guy two revolvers, like, to kill him. Two? Wow. Two. He ends up two guns. And the guy just fucking pussies out and he runs away. Very cool shit. Wow. All right. So. That sounds made up. That's where I'm at. We'll get to Harper's Ferry next time. Um, Ooh, fun. Anybody got any plugs or anything before we get out of here? I have a plug. Um, the post office is under attack from Amazon. Andrews, and, your uh, interpretation of plug every week. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's 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 an act. It's an activity for a very. It's a very quick ask of our listeners to uh, call your senator and um, ask. For them uh, to do a bailout to USPS, they need 25 billion bucks or they are going to go postal on you. Um, You can call them at 833-958-2668. I don't have a senator, so I can't call, but uh, other people, 833-958-2668. A lot of stuff uh, that you can complain to your senators about, and this this is one of them. I'm sure Eleanor Holmes Norton will listen, yeah, <laughs> even though listen. she can't she'll... do anything about it. <laughs> right. What well, we need people who can vote on this shit. So, uh, yeah, they're trying to get ten thousand calls um, in the next uh, week or so. I'm going to say what Anders said and follow me on Twitter at Patak Jokes which is P-T-A-K jokes, and I put all my things on there. Naomi, That's it. You got anything? Just uh, Naomi Caravani on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram. Naomi, you're on TikTok? Oh, you're not on TikTok? I'm not on is TikTok. I'm an adult. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, stand-up videos do pretty well on there, actually. Really? Do you put yeah. them to songs? No. Are you <laughs> Though I probably them? would do better on TikTok, <laughs> I'm sure. I, I do kind of want get to get into it more. But, yeah. Are you big okay. in China All now? Right, cool. <laughs> I'm big somewhere. I'm Russia. Probably Russia. Yeah. <laughs> do you know about how they, the TikTok is like just giving all your data to China? Uh, what can they yeah, possibly I mean, do with they probably the data? Are, yeah, yeah. Right. I'm I'm more worried about Amazon having my data. So well, they both have it. They have yeah. it on all of us. <laughs> they all right. for sure have it. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, this the Patreon. Why you mad? That's it. All right. Tune in next week for the shocking conclusion to John <laughs> Brown. Uh, I can't wait. Is it? But.